This is the Mike Savilla Podcast, episode 358 for July 18, 2016. My guest coming up will be my dear friend, Meredith Gould, and she just released her latest book, Desperately Seeking Spirituality, A Field Guide to Practice. Now, Meredith is more known in the church communication uh, community, and she's written a number of books in that arena. And uh, we also have an association with the uh, uh, Mayo Clinic Social Media Network. And uh, we've been talking in the past few years about kind of the intersection of uh, faith and spirituality and religion and healthcare. And uh, a lot of it is what she calls on the back channel, because I've always been kind of hesitant to uh, share some of that stuff uh, on uh, kind of the out and public uh, social media for a number of reasons, which we get into a little bit in our interview. Uh, But I've been really uh, looking forward uh, to this book. And uh, during our conversation, I shared a little bit about my process as far as where I was reading the book um, mentally and spiritually. And she shares a little bit about her story as well as far as writing the book and her little bit uh, life story uh, leading up to writing the book. So uh, here is our interview. And uh, I'll have a little bit of uh, closing comments after our conversation. Now, on the line with me uh, is someone I've known, I think, probably about five or six years now, and I consider her a friend, uh, the, the author of uh, Desperately Seeking Spirituality, A Field Guide to Practice. This is Meredith Gould. Hello, Meredith. Hello. Uh, so I'm really excited about this book. Why don't we just kind of really dive into it, and then we can kind of fill in some of our stories as we're talking about the book. And, and I've seen... Uh, in one of your interviews, uh, that you said that dear, desperately speaking, spirituality is about you know the why and when traditional spiritual practices have stopped working. You've probably been hearing this a lot, but this book has, has came along at, at the right time in my life. You know, with all the craziness that's going on in the world right now, there there are people out there who have given up on traditional spiritual practices and and describe themselves as as spiritual, but but not necessarily religious. Is that kind of part of of how that came about writing this book that was part of it and um and i and i asked people who are reading the book to to read the preface and i recently got a note from someone saying you know or or yeah read the preface and i got a note from someone saying i never read the press preface but you told me to so i did and i'm glad i did like okay good someone who can follow directions but in the preface i taught i i give people i give readers a little more of a a background a story about how i came to write the book and in that one of the stories i tell is how i went on to facebook because i'm always you know i'm a sociologist by training so i always collect data and these days i collect it online so i went to facebook and i asked people which spiritual practices do you dislike the most? And I asked them in groups where I knew there were a lot of clergy. I also knew there were a lot of lay leadership and de- across uh, denominations. And also I asked, I think, in one healthcare group. But it was really very funny because the, it was actually spew came back. I mean, people are like, I hate Lexio Divina. I'm like, whoa, hate Lexio. Wow, that's a strong word. You yeah. know, like, I hate the one I look. I hate the labyrinth. 
puts me to sleep. And I'm thinking, <laughs> how can you fall asleep walking the labyrinth? Alrighty, you know, so I was very interested to see which spiritual practices that are venerable. They're traditional. They've been around for centuries that people just said, can't do them. They put me to sleep. They do nothing for me at this point. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then, again, I say this in the preface, I started to get all the back channel notes, mostly from clergy, saying, really? I can't, yeah, I can't wow. stand this stuff. I can't do this stuff. I can't stand this stuff. Uh, you know, I'm in the religion industry, and it's basically gutted my spiritual life. And And often, you know, as you know, and probably some of your listeners know, I, I do have a tendency towards hyperbole. No. No, yeah, no. really. Awesomely so. Awesome hyperbole. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome over-the-top hyperbole. But but really, no joke, I'm not making this up. I mean, I was getting, and not just one, you know, one or two clergy people, that's one thing, but I got a lot from people saying, I just, I, I, I'm losing my spiritual life, and I'm a pastor, I'm a minister, I'm a priest. I don't, you know, what's up with that? So that was actually valuable because as I was thinking about, I mean, I sort of knew what I wanted to write about, but getting those notes got me deeper just thinking, okay, I'm onto something. And the thing that I'm onto, it's not so much spiritual but not religious, although that's certainly one of the markets. It's also people who are raised in a religious tradition or have learned very traditional practices and they just stop working. And then they, you know, flay themselves alive because, oh, I'm a horrible person, my faith is bankrupt, I'm not even spiritual, I do nothing, um, I look at clouds, does that count? You know, so <laughs> so that's, that's why I said, okay, okay, why don't we just, just take a moment and, and think about all this doing. You know, there's something inherently weird about let's do spiritual practices and that's how I got to the premise what if we started with what we want to become as a result of doing all these things and make those outcomes the practices themselves so that's how I came up with the practices of being yeah, exactly, and and I guess from from a well, I, I guess I'll inject a little bit of my story into Please. this. Is that, and that's how you and I started talking online, and and, and I've never really talked about it um, publicly before until now, and and. You know, I, I, I was, you know, raised a Catholic and went to Catholic school for 12 years and, and, and uh, you know, probably during my college years and probably similar to a lot, what a lot of other people have, have went through is just, just, just what you're saying is that these traditional practices, they, they were, you know, either not as meaningful for me um, or I, which I just really didn't see a point in, 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 I like how you really do that in, in section one of your book is that you kind of go through some of uh, kind of making the case of not really making the case, but, but laying out a lot of the reasons, you know, why people have been frustrated with this for one way or another, you know, for me, you know, uh, the, uh, the rituals, um, of some of the practices, sometimes I enjoy them and sometimes I really tune out with them. Um, and that's probably a, a lot of things that you're hearing, you know, uh, from a lot of different traditional spiritual practices. 
Well, yeah, and it's very interesting because there has been a trend in the past, oh, I'm going to say three to five years, see a lot of um, especially younger people uh, who are coming out of the evangelical non-denominational churches. So I would, you know, as opposed to the liturgically structured churches like the Roman Catholic Church or evangelical lutheran church in america or the united methodist church you know where there's a more formal episcopal church where there's a more formal liturgy uh for worship so seeing a lot of these uh younger evangelical non-denominational types suddenly falling in love with liturgy formal liturgical worship because it's so different uh, from what they're used to in terms of a worship practice and you know, I'm trying to be very well behaved, which, as you can imagine, is excruciatingly difficult for me. But um, actually, I do have a line of a, a reference to it in the book where I say, yeah, it's all fun until it's not. Um, and so I predict that in uh, probably two to three, maybe five years, all the young evangelicals who have suddenly become so enthralled with liturgical worship and the more traditional spiritual practice are, are going to end up where people who were raised in those traditions are and say, okay, this isn't doing it for me anymore. Now what do I do? Or how do I be? So it's, you know, as a sociologist, everything is endlessly fascinating for me. And I'm really glad you mentioned that the, section, the first section has that framework because that was my goal. Let's, let's look at the framework for how we understand spirituality, spiritual life, spiritual practices, um, and, and, and the value of structure. You know, when is it valuable and when does it start to uh, turn on itself and the people who use it? So thanks for noticing that. Another thing that uh, about the first section is is that uh, uh, I was really surprised um, when I guess not really I surprised myself I guess I should say when you started tying a lot of these to emotion um, and for me I kind of tied it to my childhood so you know is, is some of this pushback for me now was it tied to certain things that happened in my childhood as far as certain events or something with my parents or something like that and and uh so, so I, I guess it happened during the, in this first section is that i guess when people you know pick up this book there may be uh expecting like a how-to type of thing but but especially in the first couple of sections i mean you, you really challenge the reader and say hey this is how it is but but really look inside yourself i, I don't know if that was kind of part of your process too is writing the book <laughs> but 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 i found myself kind of really questioning things in myself and i'm like uh wait a minute this this is not. Is this how I'm supposed to be acting or reacting to this book? But uh, when I, when that first started happening to me, I had to step back and say, "Hey, what what you know, what was really happening as far as re-examining my childhood or re-examining the last few years of my life?" Right, and uh, yeah, and I do want to talk about my own process in writing the book, which was definitely a spiritual process. But the book has um, every chapter has at the end a section called "Know Thyself." And it's uh, three questions that I invite readers to contemplate. And you're right. In the first section, I very purposefully asked questions like, you know, what, you know, why did I, here's one from the chapter two, why did I stop this practice or why do I want to stop it now? 
you know, in the chapter about structure, one of the questions is, um, you know, in which circumstances and under what conditions do I generally find structure helpful? Um, so, yeah, I, I very much wanted to help the reader think through, you know, it's one thing to say, Ugh, I can't stand this stuff, I don't want to do it. Well, that's lovely, get that out of your system. And now, let's talk about why. What are the, what are the sources of that? And, and so in this book, actually more so than some of my other books, but this book I notice I have easily as much information about uh, psychology, development, you know, behavioral psychology and psychospirituality as I do the psychosocial and the sociological stuff. Um, stuff would be a technical term. Um, <laughs> but I, I realized as I was writing it that a lot of the issues, a lot of the things that get in the way of people having a spiritual life or engaging in spiritual practices uh, and also walking away from them and then coming back to them, that those are psycho-spiritual issues and they're usually tied in with a powerful combination of some kind of family of origin stuff, social exactly. institutions. And yes. social institution stuff, and yes. by the you know the social institution stuff, education, um, you know, peers, things like that. So I, you know, I spent a lot of time in this book um, saying, all right, what do I need? Um, what do I want readers to to know about? What do I want them to think about? How can I guide them through thinking these about these things? And um, you know, I gained about seven pounds while I was writing this book. Oh. Yeah. I was eating my way to... <laughs> <laughs> I was self-soothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, going through it, I mean, just, just to let people know, just to let readers know, I mean, it is, you know, relatively a quick read, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the foreign factor of it, um, and it's, it's, it, kind of acts like a little pocketbook mm-hmm. um and when you go through it you know it, it is a quick read but but if you really want to get you know deeper meaning of it um you know i had to like stop after section one and kind of uh reflect on those chapters before going forward and and, and i think people will get more appreciation kind of doing something like that um but but yeah i mean it's it, it's uh, uh a relatively quick read and and uh, i enjoy how you at the end, you have a little, I guess, a little workbook type of things and yeah. people to, to jot down to reflect a little bit on what they've read. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, yeah, what's, again, very interesting things to get through the back channel. We have a friend in common, I will not mention her name, although she has written about this in public, who sent me an email a couple of weeks ago was basically, damn you, I am stuck on the chapter um, about empathy. <laughs> I thought I was an empathic person. I am not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And you know, it was like it was like a like a six hundred word email. Um, so we ended up on Skype talking about it, which I appreciated, and it's wonderful. And she's a dear friend, and I and I love that she was able able to articulate it and how she articulated it. But that's what's starting to happen. I, I was. I've mentioned this to you before. I've been a little freaked out about, are people actually reading this book? Because people aren't telling me. But now people are starting to contact me and they're sharing what you just shared that, yeah, it's, it's 
you know, it's not, it's one of my books. My chapters are always short. They're very conversational. There are a lot of there's a lot of boxed material. Um, they seem like they're light, fast reads. They are fast reads. But what I'm getting from people is, whoa, I thought this was a just, wow. I had to go back and reread that a bunch of times. <laughs> and now I'm staring. I'm sitting. Some person sent me a note saying, I'm sitting on my porch, staring into middle distance, shaking my head. <laughs> yeah, because that, 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 that was kind of my approach to it. Because I've heard some of your interviews and, and read some of your interviews uh, before this book. And, yeah. you know, you talk about, you know, willingness and curiosity and empathy and generosity and delight. I'm like, okay, that's, that's kind of, all right, great. Uh, I'm focused. Um, that's the meat of the book. I'm going to focus on that. Uh, yeah. And then as I go through that, um, you know, you go through all the good stuff. And then you just kind of really challenge the reader and say, um, okay, so are you really doing this? And, you know, you kind of use, you know, words like willingness, but, you know, what if you're, you know, apathetic or averse yeah. or opposed? And, and then like, wait a minute, I do that sometimes in some situations. Damn you, Meredith Gold, I can't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And actually one of my clergy buddies, um, said that her favorite section was uh, in in the uh, practices and the practices of being section, section two. She said what she really loved was the box called Consider the Alternatives. She said because, yeah, you know, generosity, but then seeing, well, Consider the Alternatives. Is it this, altruistic, big-hearted, giving, hospitable? Or do you want to be this, stingy, mean-spirited, withholding, and begrudging? And she says, well, when you put it that way, exactly. you know. <laughs> now, for me, I got, as I was writing it, what really kicked my butt was the third section. I mean, the whole book kicked my butt. We can talk about that if you want. The whole sure. book kicked my butt. But the third section, writing that, really kicked my butt. And the chapter that challenged me the most was the one about relaxation and rest oh yeah we'll get to that okay oh uh, yeah yeah <laughs> um so yeah yeah t talk a little about uh, about uh, how i mean because i've heard you know I'm, and you've you've said also that oh every author says that you know the book they've written was the really hardest book that they've written but but i've heard you say i mean this is really tough to to write oh god this book I cannot, you know, I can't even count the number of times. Now, I have a wonderful cadre of first readers, and then I have my first among first readers. So, I, I set this up, and I've written about this. I think I wrote a piece about this on Medium about, and I think this is essential for, for authors, is to have first readers, the people who read your stuff and draft and provide input before it even gets anywhere near the publisher and and I choose each each book each of my books has a different set of first readers although there's usually overlap of one or two people well I have wonderful first readers and uh, I choose people who are not going to pander to my my stuff and who are going to speak truth to stupid and speak it in love with compassion um, and so I spent a lot of time during the book process sending plaintiff little ridiculous notes via email and direct message. And I think I even used Facebook messaging a couple of times saying, I really want to stop writing this book. Can I just quit? I mean, I don't want to write this book anymore. Yeah. I, 
I don't like writing this. I don't like writing this book. <laughs> um, and and I also thought now, uh, most books. I, it's just about every. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think every book I've written so far, and this is my tenth book. I've written. I just start wherever I want to start. I usually start with either the easiest chapter to write, so I get a quick success. I feel like, oh, I can write a book. Or I start with the hardest chapter, the most difficult, challenging chapter, so I can say, got that out of the way. All right? So with this book, I thought, I don't know what I thought. I don't even, it's like purposeful forgetting at this point. But at at this book, I thought, oh, I'll start. And then where I thought I was going to start, I couldn't. When I got to the second section, I realized, oh, I thought, oh, I know what I wanted to do. I wanted to write the curiosity chapter first because that is my go-to spiritual practice. I mean, that is my core practice, and it has served me in very good stead for a very long time. Um, just the practice of, you know, asking questions and being curious and all that. So I thought, oh, I'll start with that because I love that. Right. And I was, I can't, I can't, because willingness is the foundation for curiosity. I mean, you cannot, you can't just skip ahead to curiosity. You have to be willing first. It's a foundational practice. So I thought, all right, I'll start with that. And then I got to curiosity. And then when I got to empathy, originally that chapter was supposed to be on compassion. Well, as I started to do the research on compassion and all that, I realized, no, 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 no. Compassion, which most people confuse with empathy, is something completely different. And by the way, you actually can't be compassionate unless you have empathy. And while we're at it, what's the difference between sympathy and empathy? So I, you know, for my friend who was a little upset by that chapter, yeah, well, sister, so was I, and I was writing it. So, (laughs) (laughs) and then, Uh. You know, I think my favorite chapter, my favorite chapter, I think, was the delight chapter because that was just fun. It was just fun to write, and and I believe it. And even that chapter was interesting because one of my first readers highlights. She said, "I love that you chose the word delight and not joy." And when she said that, I said, "Yeah, I I think I did that. Oh, I'm going to say I did that on purpose." Um. And I did, and then I had to stop because I thought, well, do I mean joy or do I mean delight? And what is the difference? And how does fun factor into that? So every single chapter, especially in the practices of being, um, just took me on a journey and also forced me to say, do I do this stuff? (laughs) (laughs) And I've heard you uh, say before that, um, you know, People should read it in order yeah, and, and not and not jump to delight first and then work yeah, backwards. Much as we'd love to, yeah. And and again, uh, um, and I usually say in basically all my other books, start anywhere. But with this one, well, actually, the book "Staying Sober," the book on twelve-step recovery, I say you probably need to read that in order because it won't make any sense. But and again, that. You know, 12-step recovery is very anchored in spirituality. It's a spiritual program. It's not a self-help program. So that book needs to be read in order. And then I realized, no, I cannot recommend a jump around at your own peril. Um, 
and and like that. But yeah, it was very challenging because I I didn't write it as as quickly as I've written other books. I've been known to write a book in eight to ten weeks. Um, and I had to push the delivery date back a couple of times in my liturgical press, which is my publisher for this book and also for the social media gospel. They were wonderful and they accommodated that. And I was very grateful, but I could not rush through it because I had to work through this stuff for myself. Um, and working through included me sitting myself down real hard and saying, wow, you're not you're not being this. You're not being you're not Exactly. Being. And, and and you know, I, as a reader, you know, I, I went through that um basically on on every one of those practices and then I was like, hmm, why I guess I did the same thing as a reader. Uh, why am I reading this book? Should I keep reading this book or should I stop reading this book? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I have to talk to Meredith, so I have to read the book. <laughs> Yeah, right. You have to read the book. Well, I, you know, one of the funniest notes I ever got, not about this book, but about another book, somebody once said to me, it was actually a great compliment. I got this note from someone who said, yeah, I just threw your book across the room and it hit the wall and now I have to spackle the wall. Your, your book, just like, I don't want to read this stuff. Don't make me do this stuff. I'm like, I'm not making you do anything. Just, you know, buy my book, share it with your friends. And um, if it doesn't make any sense now, maybe it will at another time. Um, but yeah, the writing was difficult. I actually, and I've been writing for a really long time, but this this book, um, this book jumped me through some hoops that I did not anticipate. Had I anticipated them, I probably never would have proposed it or started it. And also reminded me... Um, and this is a this is a good thing because I needed this reminder. It also reminded me that for me, writing, which is a doing and being thing, but for me, writing is also a spiritual practice. It's how I work through my stuff. Um, it's how I. Uh, it's the vehicle through which I'm able to connect to with something larger, greater, beyond me which I think is the essence of spirituality, is that awareness of something greater than self. Um, and writing helps me get to that place because at some point, well, it makes it a spiritual practice is that at some point it doesn't matter how big my, vo my vocabulary is, how adroit I am at writing, how fast I can type or talk into dragon, naturally speaking. At some point I get to, I sit there and say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of words. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And at that point, I surrender. I'm willing to let it go. And I just say, flow it through me. Um, and before we talked about section three, which was actually my favorite part of the, of the entire book. Really? I, yeah. Why? Tell uh, me. Well, we'll get to that. I, okay. I, I, I did want to um, let people know. I, I, uh, you know, you, you mentioned you're an author and you've written books, and I want everybody to go to MarriedWithGould.com. And, and this book here is kind of a return to a previous type of writing because most people right. who know you and know your work or <clears throat> know books like the, the Social Media Gospel and your books on church communication, um, share a little bit about how this is kind of a return to, to a type of writing that you were doing before. Oh, yeah, it, it really is. Um, I, I will say that. Uh, everything is of a piece. And what I was thinking about, actually, uh, 
earlier this week. I mean, it's Thursday. How much earlier in the week could it have been? Okay, <laughs> like yesterday. Um, I was thinking about how the seeds for every book I write are sown in the previous book. So when I wrote, um, when I wrote Staying Sober, I realized that I wanted to write more about service as a spiritual practice and that's how I ended up writing Deliberate Acts of Kindness and then um, you know this book leads to that book and then what happened with the church communications was that when that first book when I wrote that first book which came out the word made fresh communicating church and faith today that came out in 2008 and at the time I was working in church communications I was Doing healthcare community, I was involved with healthcare communications, but I was also uh, a part-time uh, on a part-time on a on a church staff doing communications. And I thought, wow, people really don't get that communications is a ministry. And so I I I want to sidetracked really isn't accurate because church communications has been very good to me and yes. I and I do love I do love that work. I love it. I love healthcare and I love the church communications and I especially love that there is a remarkable remarkable amount of overlap um, in the two in terms of issues having to do with privacy and confidentiality and 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 caring for and about people and educating people and all that. So they're very similar industries in that sense. But, you know, I ended up writing the books on communications and um, got very, very into that. And then I would say about a year or so ago, I thought, you know what? My spiritual life isn't doing so well. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> because I'm working for church. You know, because I'm working at church communications and healthcare all the time. But um, what do I want to write about? And then I thought, you know what? I really do feel that the deeper call for me is has always been to write about the spirituality of everyday life. That it doesn't matter. You don't have to work in the religion industry. You don't have to work in church or synagogue. Um, spiritual awareness and spiritual life is everywhere. Um, you know, whether you're sitting in a waiting room, um, waiting for your test results, or you're standing in a line in the supermarket and getting cheesed off by the person who has shown up in the 12 items lane with 40 items, you know, all those are opportunities to say, who am I? Where am I located? What does my life mean? And how do I want to be in the world uh, do I connect? Do I see myself as a seamless web of all creation? And how do I want to behave? So, um, and I think that happens regardless of occupation, career, or environment. And so I thought, you know, I want to get back to writing about that. And so that's how, um, you know, as I said earlier, I just, because I was doing so much work with church, um, I was kept running into people who were just so unhappy and feeling so tapped out uh, spiritually. And then also in healthcare. I mean, you and I have talked about this before privately. Let's go public. But I, I've had, you know, because of the Chisakam chat and talking about church social media, I have a 
lot of, phys- of practitioners, um, physicians, nurses, al- other allied health professionals, healthcare communicators, you know, people contacting me over the years through the back channel saying, wow, you talk about spiritual stuff, you talk about your faith, how do you do that? How do you get away with that in the healthcare industry? And I go, well, I, you know, quote, get away from it, end of air quote, because I'm an independent consultant, I'm an independent contractor, I'm not signing away any rights I have to talk about this stuff because I'm in a hospital system or whatever. Um, well, yeah, and, and I was one of the people who were asking you that, you know, yeah. and, and, and that, that's how we met. You know, we, we met on Twitter and we started talking about things and, and you know, I, I uh, started talking about, you know, um, you know, my work with, with patients and sometimes hospice patients and, and sometimes, you know, how how we pray together and, and you know, physicians don't talk about that publicly. Um, and I guess that, that was kind of, you know, part of my starting a dialogue with you is, is as far as, you know, how do you talk about this publicly? How, how would I talk about this publicly? Right. Um, right. And, and there's a lot of patients I think would, would benefit, you know, from this, from reading this book as well. Um, and, and to try to bridge that gap. Um, Cause you know, there's a lot of my patients who, who uh, I wouldn't say enjoy, but they feel open to talking about issues like this with me and some who do not. Um, and we talked even before we started recording was that, you know, sometimes practitioners or patients maybe even not have the language on how to communicate on issues like this. And, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why this book is important. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah, we did talk about this before we went live. Haha, ha, we had a whole other conversation before you started listening. <laughs> um yeah, that conversation you and I had at MedEx a, a few years ago where about the whole business of language and, uh, you know, it had netted out or I, I had said, well, what if you, instead of asking, do you go to church or do you have a spiritual life? What if the question was, how do you find meaning and comfort during times of uh, stress, distress and pain? So you're not using, obviously, spiritual or religious language, um, and you're not speaking in such convoluted code that people would be suspicious, but asking, where do you find meaning and comfort, allows, opens the door for someone to say, well, actually, I'm active in my church, or actually, it's important for me to work at the local nature preserve, Um and that opens the door to have that conversation. But, I mean, I have, again, we know so many of the same people. And um, there's one person in particular who I know is a very, well, a bunch of people, very, very deep faith, very, very deep faith, who is point blank said to me, I will never talk about this on social media. Right. And, I will never talk about this on social media. And I'm like, ooh, okay, really? All right. Um, and, and you know, that's another conversation, and I would never... Yeah. Man, I'll tell you, sometimes my direct message feed, it's like a confession. But <laughs> <laughs> that's your next book, probably. <laughs> God, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. So... At the same time, I was delighted to be on uh, the chat last night with the uh, Gynex Sim social media, the Gynex uh, social media chat, 
um, talking about spirituality and quality of life because my sense, and I don't think I'm making it up, um, is that in the past year, people, uh, maybe past year, 18 months, there's been a lot more openness to talking about spiritual issues in the public domain, more so, especially around healthcare, which is, which is, I would not have, I would say was absolutely not the case even two or three years ago. I could not get anybody to talk about this stuff in public. They're like, are you weird? And I go, well, we know I'm weird. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have the conversation. Anyway. That's, a, that's a separate conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's, I'm heartened by that. I mean, Regina Heater and I started the Health and Spirituality Chat. We've now just had our first year of that chat. It's a monthly chat. We very purposefully decided to do it once a month because, and it's on Wednesdays, the third Wednesday of every month, because the right now Twitter chats, I mean, there's so many wonderful chats, and we just didn't want to flood the environment with yet another one. And we also realized that the topic itself, health and spirituality, really does call people to ruminate and contemplate more. So we didn't want to just do this weekly. And we spent a fair amount of time discussing what we would call it and how we would roll it out and who we would see who showed up. Now, I also tried to put together a similar chat four years ago, no traction whatsoever. Um, and health and spirituality, again, it's a year old, in July, yeah, a year old in May. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely little chat. It's very different from other chats I've been on. There's no, it's not a fire, it's not a fire hose chat. It's, it's more like sitting around in comfy chairs, having a leisurely conversation. And it's such a different, has such a different ethos. And it attracts all sorts of different people. And, you know, I always give a shout out to the guys at Simpler because it's considered a healthcare chat. They archive the transcripts. Um, and, you know, that's really been very valuable. But I look at the analytics for that chat. Not that I usually care about analytics, but you can have like maybe only eight to 12 people show up at the chat and actually participate in it and the reach has been phenomenal and then just to see how the reverberations you know so again it it's i think we're at a time in our especially in the united states in our in our cultural history where people are are in so much pain on so many levels that the questions which have always been the province of religion and philosophy, you know, why am I here? Uh, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? What happens when I die? Um, those are core existential questions that we are being, like it or not, <laughs> forced to ask ourselves um, these days uh, for so, so many reasons. And so I think the time is ripe to support people in saying, you know, you can you can create a spiritual life that isn't necessarily tied to a specific religion or denominational expression thereof. Um, so finishing section two, the spiritual practices of being. So section three, self-care on the journey, <laughs> spiritual practice, burnout, solitude, relaxation and rest. And I'm looking through my notes and I took notes on this section more than any other of the other sections. <laughs> 
Now, Why? I, don't, I don't know if it's my personal thing saying, Mike, uh, you need more self-care in your life, which is probably part of it. Um, but uh, it totally makes sense how you laid it out. So, so you go through all these spiritual practices and... You know, in, in the very next chapter, you're like, just don't overdo it. Like, and there's a, and I think there's a nice chart in there um, yeah. <laughs> about uh, how people can just really get into it and then burn out and then end up where they were before they read the book. I thought that was very interesting how you laid that out. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> you have no experience doing that. Yeah, that I read that. I stole that from someone else. I certainly never experienced that. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, yeah, and in the spiritual practice and the burnout thing, um, I really uh, wanted to make that distinction between spiritual burnout and spiritual practice burnout and also distinguish that from compassion fatigue which I address in the uh, chapter about empathy. So again, it's another one of those things where people uh, tend to collapse and confuse a lot of those categories, and I wanted to, to break them out, distinguish them, and explain them. So uh, with the hope that that would be useful for readers. Um, and the spiritual burnout... Um, I, is very familiar to me. All the examples in that chart are ones that I've either heard or trotted out myself to justify overwrought spiritual practices. So um, that, um, the solitude one, I'm an INTJ, so I derive a lot of energy from solitude. I, which, think, I think we're similar like that. Well, yeah, and you know, you're so... Um, because we've met, you know, I I know that about you, and yet your public persona is very, very gregarious, very extroverted, and people and think, yours too. Oh, I know. People <laughs> think I'm an extrovert. I'm yeah, like, me no, too. I don't know. I hate people yeah. getting away from me. Yeah. <laughs> Newsflash: Mike and Meredith are introverts. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, and but that's the beauty of social media. I mean, we have this chat periodically on Chisakam that uh, a lot of that social media is particularly wonderful for introverts because we can calibrate the amount of time and and decide when we want to have people contact. So, you know, I say to people, yeah, I'm all chatty and and especially because I work from a home office and I'm alone, well, with the cat, um, <laughs> almost all the time. So I do tend to get real chitty chatty when I'm in person or like now on a podcast but when we get off this uh, off this Skype call I go back into silence and thank you very much I'm happy about that um, I'm also I mean this is should be no news to anyone who knows anything about me or reads my stuff especially after reading this book I'm also been in 12 step recovery for a really long time um, and so I get a lot of my social and certainly a lot of my spiritual needs met by going to uh, meetings. Um, and so that that is actually re replaced uh, church for me in a lot of ways. Um, so there's that. So the solitude for me, I crave solitude, absolutely. I'm hungry for it. Um, but, and, you know, in that chapter, I wanted to make the distinction, is it seeking solitude or is it isolating? Because I know, and, and you're very active, you, you're actively involved with the suicide chat, suicide prevention yes. chat. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and that's also an area I'm very interested in. My my mother's hobby was suicide attempts. Thank you very much. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that, as you know, diagnostically, uh, some people who are isolating are flying under the radar of some kind of delusional system about this is solitude. Okay, and it's not healthy. So I wanted to, in that chapter about solitude, was break out that a little bit and say, you know, when is this? Uh, hey, when do you need to get some therapy? You know. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So th- those you do outline that in the book. So yeah. Yeah. So and I and I do have I think about have a box about let's go shopping for a therapist about how to choose a therapist because I think that's the other thing that goes on in spiritual life that people say oh I'm a spiritual person I've got these spiritual practices and I'm on a spiritual journey so I don't need psychotherapy and it's like oh no actually what you've done is spiritual bypassing you spiritualized all your stuff justified it and and put the label spiritual on it. But in fact, it's not exactly healthy and you need someone to guide you through that. And, you know, newsflash, it's probably not going to be a spiritual director or a clergy person who has absolutely no training in uh, psychology and has no clinical skills. So I'm, you know, I can, I can as you can tell, I can get a, pretty much of a head of head of steam up about that one because i've seen so much damage um in spiritual communities and also religious communities for people who have said well i have god so i don't need to do this other stuff you know and it's like yeah okay um uh, oh and uh, relaxation and rest i I like how you kind of (laughs) flip that and i was reading that and i was like that made me think for a while um so yeah, you, so it's like you and me both brother <laughs> i mean i i wrote it first i original in the original proposal i had rest and relaxation like the rest of the world yeah and then you know i you know people don't get this thing about writing writing i mean the actual writing that takes the least amount of time the most amount of time is doing the research and thinking about stuff especially for writing nonfiction for the kind of work i do so i'm reading all this stuff about rest and all of a sudden it sinks into my febrile brain oh you actually can't rest unless you're relaxed exactly who knew <laughs> I, had put, I, I, I didn't throw the book but I had to put the book down and I was like oh yeah <laughs> oh that oh yeah. that yeah. I know yeah and I think you, I think you make some kind of reference like that in the book too and you're like duh <laughs> well I know and you know it's like and and why do I not know this? I mean, you know, name drop here. I'm friends with Pam Ressler. I mean, you know, mindless, you know, mindfulness, mindfulness, fabulous nurse, educator, all this other stuff. She's, I mean, she's a personal friend and I'm still like scratching my head like, really? What? Relaxation? How does that, f- how does that fit? <laughs> so <laughs> I... You know, I laugh, I end up laughing at myself as I write when I'm not weeping. You know, sometimes I literally just like put my head in my hands and go, wow, I am really, good thing I'm writing this because I really need to learn this stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, and I read the, the appendix, uh, all of them as well. And I wanted to ask you about 
did yeah. Appendix C, your rule of spiritual life. And there's a bunch, oh, yeah. of, bunch, of, bunch of questions in there. And, and what do you hope for the reader to take from that appendix? Um, well, at the very least, I want people, I, I would hope that readers just start thinking about what it means to have a rule of life. Like, what does that mean? Like, how do, how might I organize my life so that it's balanced? So that, um, you know, and the classic rule is the rule of St. Benedict. Um, and that uh, is, it's about balance. So it's not like you, it's not like the, the monks pray all day, every day. Uh, prayer is balanced with work, and it's balanced with study, and it's also balanced with times for renewal, which they actually call recreation. Um, so we get, and certainly I am, extremely unbalanced when it comes to this stuff. And so a rule of life, the questions in that appendix are really designed to say, okay, how, you know, if you want to have, if you want to rebuild or cultivate a, a spiritual awareness and a spiritual life, what would that look like? What are the activities you would do? And then what kind of structure, you know, somewhere between an extremely rigid structure and absolutely nothing, what would support that, you know? And and perhaps the support does come from a more traditional worship structure. I mean, one of the questions is, to what extent does a liturgical calendar help organize my spiritual life? Well, for some people, it's like, what's a liturgical calendar? And for other people, it's like, oh, that's a good idea. I should use that structure to organize my spiritual life. And then, you know, asking things about, you know, the cognitive and emotional behavioral issues. It's like what, you know, the whole thing about choosing practices, and I do say this in the first section, the, the notion that this practice isn't working. When people say that to me, I say, well, tell me a little bit more about how you learn, how you think, what works for you. And the practice, and so, you know, I'll laugh because if you have someone who says, oh, I can't sit still for a moment, I'm very hyper, I know that about myself, I'm very kinesthetic, um, I, and I'll look at that person and laugh as, as compassionately as I can and say, why, on, why would you think sitting meditation would work for you? Of course you're going to hate sitting meditation. <laughs> you can't sit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, why would you do that? I mean, you're better off going and singing with a choir, and I mean that quite literally. You're better off singing in the shower as a spiritual practice than you are sitting and meditating, given the way you are in the world. And then this whole notion about, am I successful? So in the rule of life appendix, I say, okay, so how do you typically measure spiritual growth and how do you define spiritual results well if your notion of spiritual result is you hear the music of the spheres and the whole world explodes in light well you're probably never going to have it's kind of a setup for failure for some most people so I ask those those questions and of course always loop back with the support issues like where do you get your support um, are you working with a psychotherapist? Are you working with a life coach? Now, I will say, again, I always ask questions that are anchored in stuff I've done. So at different points in my life, 
I have been in heavy duty and not so heavy duty psychotherapy. I've worked with life coaches, very useful. I've dipped in and out of spiritual direction and at different times for different reasons. So I just invite people, just think about that a little bit. You know, it may be that you need the support, but you're seeking it from the wrong source. Um, and, and for people who uh, read the book, I mean, the, the gem of the book uh, and <laughs> is, is the end, the end notes. Um, oh, the notes. <laughs> I was, I was going to skip the end notes. But I told myself, Mike, you're going to read the book. You're going to read every section of this book. And for people, especially people who know Meredith, uh, the, the, all, uh, a lot of this is, uh, I mean, you have references in here. and uh, um, But sometimes you have uh, some of uh, Meredith's uh, quirky and witty comments. And as I was reading the book, um, I was like, oh, she would normally say this here, and it's not here. But when you go into the end notes, I'm like, oh, there's the other comment. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I do say in the preface, I said, you know, please, you know, read it in sequence. And also, please uh, consider the end notes. Um, and I say, you know, I use them for the commentary. I haven't jammed into the main text. And some of it's snarcastic, the snarcastic stuff I mutter to myself. And some Easter eggs, you know, that are not that hidden. So... I've had that. I've gotten that comment too, where people are saying, "Oh my God, those end notes!" Um, and I've done that. But you see, that's that's in every book. I think in this book, it's got it completely went a little over the top, which is fine by me. But I once used the end notes in a book to slam a really famous person for being mean to me. Um, <laughs> but I did it kind of in a cloaked way. So people who were in that particular field it is like a, the a theological, esoteric nonsense. But anyway, the people who read that and kind of connected those dots have come back to me and said, whoa, you went after so-and-so? I said, you bet your life I did. She was mean to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I am that, I am that immature and psycho-spiritually under-evolved <laughs> to get back at her in a footnote, in an endnote, in a book. So, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, I, I, you know, I'm human. Ridiculously so. <laughs> but yeah, I have a lot of fun in the end notes. A lot of fun in the end notes. Well, and you have a lot of fun in the main text too. You know, when, yeah. I, was, when I started reading the book, I was on a plane and uh, I, I, I read the Ghostbusters reference. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was, you know, literally was, was laughing out loud. And people were looking at me and were like, you're, you're laughing about a book about spirituality. I'm like, you bet I am. Get, yeah. back, get back to your magazine. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, the Ghostbusters reference. And that is my favorite line. Back off. I'm a social scientist. You know, I just I love that. I love that. I won't even go see the new one on the off chance they took that line out. Exactly. No, yeah, I'm, I'm protesting that. It's like, yeah. I've got it now. So, but um, yeah, the book is, it's, it's pretty wild. I'm working, the one I'm writing now, again, for Liturgical Press is, um, you know, people have heard me say this before. I say, don't get mad, get published. Um, so whenever I get kind of a fly in my own ointment, I decide, all right, I'm going to write a book about this. So the next, the book I'm writing right now is Transcending Generations, A Field Guide to Collaboration in Church, but actually it could be anywhere. And that's my whole 
hissy fit about how people confuse chronological age with life cycle development and then generational cohort and create this mashup of we can't get along. And my big, my big project in this new book is to say, yeah, 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 you're looking at the wrong stuff. So, um, you know, again, it's structured the same way. This first section are for all frameworks for understanding. And then I'll get into, you know, what is shared regardless of generation, regardless of age. So I'm in the throes of that and um, happy to say it hasn't been as painful as writing Desperately Seeking Spirituality. Possibly because I'm numb at this point. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think you talked about it earlier, you know, some people read every word. I read every word of this book. Did you? Uh, I did. I did. Oh, and you know what? I wrote every word of this book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I was uh, I was surprised and humbled uh, to see that uh, I was uh, in the acknowledgments. So I want to yeah. thank you for that. Um, and um, yeah, I mean this. Uh, um, I hope I hope you know many 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 people um, enjoy this book. Um, I've uh, talked to a lot of people on my back channel it's not as big as your back channel um who are very curious about it and uh are uh, in the process of of trying to get through the book and uh i'm really curious on on the conversation that happens because i think especially with you and i uh, being on social media you know we, we enjoy the conversation and uh, i think this book will will spark a good conversation out there thanks i hope so i mean i i you know as i said i i think we're at a point in in our cultural history in this country especially where people are in a lot of pain um, emotionally and as we know I mean those of us who are in and around healthcare, care and um, there's there's a high correlation between psychological and psycho psychosocial pain psycho spiritual pain and physical pain uh, you know as you know I'm I have my own chronic illness crazy stuff and it is it is really true that I can track um, I can track my pain levels mostly with the barometric pressure because fibro and lupus are kind of like that but but also when I am agitated um, wherein I am not feeling centered or I don't feel a connection to something greater then I'm more at risk for physical pain and I'm more at risk for illness. So certainly emotional illness in addition to physical illness. So my hope is that people in and around the healthcare industry, especially people who care so much about that intersection of emotional, mental, and physical health, will see, um, you know, investigating, being open to considering what the spiritual dimensions are, that that will be helpful. I would be very happy if that happened. Uh, before I let you go, I did want to let people know uh, to go to uh, MeredithGould.com and to follow you on Twitter at MeredithGould. And uh, before we go, maybe you can, you can mention uh, you, those uh, couple Twitter chats, um, your oh, spirituality okay. chats and your uh, church and yeah. social media chat. Okay. The... I can't even pronounce, I create these hashtags I can't pronounce. Okay, so the health and spirituality chat is H-L-T-H-S-P. Health. 
<laughs> Let me wipe off my microphone here. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, um, and that is actually, we also have a Facebook group that's public and open. So we have, it's Regina Heater and I, she's on as at Rec Show. Um, and that chat is every third Wednesday of the month. Uh, from 9 to 10 Eastern Time. We have a Facebook group. What Again, what we decided to do with the Facebook group is that it's a very, there's not a lot of stuff up there. There's not a lot of conversation. We go for quality, not quantity. It's a cozy community. We post resources at that intersection of health and spirituality. And so uh, people are certainly welcome to join that group on Facebook and lurk or participate in the chat. The Chisakam chat, we just celebrated five years of weekly chats. That's the C-H-S-O-C-M. That's the church and social media chat. Um, again, five years. And we meet on Tuesdays from 9 to 10, which is a little bit of a challenge, although kind of fun for me because I try to get to the healthcare leader, you know, HDLDR yeah. chat, yeah. from 8.30 to 9.30. So I have this overlap where I'm just in multitasking heaven um oh yeah and sometimes i'm there and and we have our little snarky back channel yeah. chats and that's fun too yeah so that you know and that actually that community is very interesting a lot of people like joe babian i mean gs i mean there are a lot of people in that community who totally get the value of a spiritual life call on um and so that, that's been kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, those chats I find very useful. I think for people who are interested, there was just a mental health church chat that started or church mental health chat. I haven't gone to it because it overlaps uh, with another chat, uh, but at some point I'll check that out. I do think for people who are, and again, I lurk on it, I don't participate in it, but I do think the SPSM chat um, is inherently inherently speaks to some of these issues. Would you agree or? Oh, no, I, I would actually absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, and um, just talking with them and chatting with them uh, online and offline, absolutely. Yeah, a lot yeah. of these issues are, are, are very similar. Well, right, because with suicide, you know, it, it's <laughs> you don't have to be a genius or an expert uh, to realize that. Something, you know, that the link between suicide and despair, I mean, like total despair, um, that, that yes, yeah, some of it is, uh, you know, it can be related to all sorts of things, but it's also very much an existential issue. It's, it's an emptiness that is a psychosocial issue and also very much a psychospiritual issue. So I'm not aware that they're addressing, that chat is addressing the spiritual stuff directly. I should go just go talk to them about that. But I would think that that chat would also be um, a good chat for people who, who uh, read this book would find that chat uh, helpful and, and a good place to hang out. Uh, and to let people know, uh, this, your new book is uh, now available on the Kindle, right? Yes, at last, as God intended. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love, I mean, I, I read paper, you know. I, yeah, me too. I, yeah, but for, you know, it's interesting for nonfiction. Uh, for fiction, I'm, hap I'm fine reading on an e-reader, um, but for nonfiction, I have to read paper. I don't know what that is. Uh, Desperately Seeking Spirituality, A Field Guide to Practice. Uh, Meredith Gould, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Mike. Catch you online. 
So thanks again to Meredith Gould uh, for joining me on the program today. Check out her book, uh, Desperately Seeking Spirituality, A Field Guide to Practice. Uh, you can uh, get more information about her at uh, meredithgould.com. Uh, so thanks, everybody, for uh, joining me on the program today. You can check me out at uh, drmikesvilla.com. Also, follow me on Twitter and uh, say hi to me on uh, Facebook and wherever. Uh, even Snapchat, I'm trying that out. So uh, thanks again uh, for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk to everybody very soon. See ya!